Welcome back to the Understanding Urbanism podcast. I'm Dallas Rogers. It's great to have you along. This is the podcast that accompanies the book of the same name, Understanding Urbanism, which is edited by me, Dallas Rogers, Adrian Keane, Taran Alizahe, and Jacqueline Nelson. The book is published by Palgrave Macmillan, and it's really good to have you along. In this episode, we'll be talking about Chapter 1, Understanding Urbanism, written by me. I have two key takeaways from this chapter. The first is understanding the difference between urbanisation and urbanism. These are two foundational ideas you'll need to understand before you move into the rest of the chapters in the textbook. And the second are the key ideas that we'll talk about throughout the textbook. And these are the built environment professions and practices, urban and social morphology, urban change, questions of scale and agglomeration, the provision of infrastructures and services, different experiences and cultures in the city, and urbanism as a form of inquiry and analysis. We'll briefly cover all of these topics in this episode. So first up, what is urbanisation and urbanism? And why is the study of cities important today? Well, historically, urbanisation was about immigration from the countryside into the city. And this rural to urban migration driver of urbanisation is still largely true today. So at the turn of the 21st century, more than 50% of the world's population lived in cities. In 2020, that figure had reached about 55%, and by 2050, almost 70% of the world's population are predicted to live in cities. So cities are important because lots of people are going to live in them, and part of the driver of this is urbanisation. And countries with over 1 billion people will be key to this global urbanisation. So think about countries like China with 1.38 billion people or India with 1.34 billion people. And if you want to think about this in terms of urbanisation, just think about this for a second. When the People's Republic of China was established in 1949, only 10% of the national population lived in cities. By 1978, that figure had only reached 20%, but 55% of the national population was urban in 2015, and that figure is predicted to reach 60% by 2030. And this is a country with 1.38 billion people. So this demographic or population mobility definition of urbanisation is a useful starting point for our discussion because it suggests that urbanisation and urbanism are not the same thing. Urbanisation refers to the increase in the proportion of the population that is urban as opposed to rural. Urbanism is what happens inside cities. It's about the form and function of cities and how cities relate to the rural. Urbanism often refers to the study of how the inhabitants of urban or urbanising areas interact with the people and places of our cities. What marks the boundary between the rural and the urban, or a town and a city, is the topic of ongoing debates and disagreements in urban studies, 
which you'll learn more about as you move through your studies in this course and others. It's also a debate we've been having for a long time. In 1938, Lewis Wirth published Urbanism as a Way of Life, and he suggested that there were three key urban characteristics, a large population, a high population density, and social difference. This is what we might call a universal social theory of the city, because it suggests that the complex phenomena of urbanisation can be understood through an analysis of a limited number of basic categories. In this case, Worth has three. Worth's idea that urban difference rather than rural similarity was shaping the social relations in the city was a powerful heuristic in its day, even if scholars later rejected universal theories of the cities like his. The point here is that we can define and analyse cities in different ways. Over time, cities have been analysed by population density, geographic size, integrated economies with a diversity of goods and services, the proliferation of specific building types or changes in urban form, such as high-rise buildings, high-population recreational spaces, such as stadiums and theatres, and new forms of government and urban governance, or even the increasing detachment of a population from directly providing their own food and energy needs. More recently, cities have been defined by what they produce, such as housing wealth or inequality, or the forms of pollution, noise, water and food shortages, and other issues and inequalities that are somewhat unique to urban environments. But here's the thing. For me... It's at the intersections and edges of these various definitions and analyses that the most interesting discussions about cities take place. But being specific is important. And as more than one built environment academic has pointed out over the years, the word urbanism probably doesn't deserve to exist. It's a fully empty term. It means everything about the city and almost nothing at the same time. So for the term urbanism to have any practical utility for the built environment professions, we need to be clear about how and why we're using the term. And we're talking about urbanism in a very narrow sense in this textbook, as a set of concerns and issues associated with the built environment professions. Concerns that are common to people who study urbanism, or urbanisation, or the practice of a built environment profession, and many of these people call themselves urbanists. But the key takeaway here is that the word urbanism, and what it stands for, is a highly contentious term, and you should be critical of it as you move through your studies. In this podcast, the concept of urbanism is linked to the professions associated with the physical and social design of our cities. These professions include urban planning, urban design, architecture, engineering, and heritage management, as well as a bunch of others. But urbanism is also linked to a range of academic disciplines and fields that are, at least partly, focused on the study of urban life and culture. This is often called urban studies. 
These academic disciplines and fields include urban sociology, human geography, urban politics, urban anthropology, architecture, engineering, heritage studies, and again, many other disciplines. So what this means is urbanism is a mode of inquiry. And by that, I mean it's a way of analysing and understanding cities. But it's also a component of built environment practice, and it might even be a component of someone's identity when they say, I'm an urbanist. So it's probably clear by now that by asking the question, what is urbanisation and urbanism, is a little more tricky than it first seems. And it's an open question that isn't really fixed or settled. It's something you'll have to work through as you go through your studies. Okay, now we've talked about what urbanism and urbanisation are, let's move on to some of the other key ideas in the built environment professions. As a built environment professional, you'll need to work with a wide range of professionals and have a working knowledge of a complex suite of urban ideas, urban issues and urban solutions. These ideas won't fall neatly under the 13 themes we've presented in the textbook. Instead, they'll cut across, they'll blend and they'll merge these themes. And in many cases, it'll be hard to keep these 13 themes separate as the ideas intersect and weave together. Just consider the digital city, for example. The introduction of digital technologies to cities spans almost the full spectrum of the themes covered in this textbook. Digital cities have already been used to profile Aboriginal people in cities. They're also important drivers of urban economies. They have clear urban planning and urban design uses, such as on roads and in public space, and they can be used in placemaking and as a mode of inquiry. So as a built environment professional, you'll always be thinking across the different urban themes. So to get you thinking in this way, in the textbook we present you with six intersecting ideas that are more common ways of thinking about urbanisation and urbanism. And these are terms you're more likely to use and encounter throughout your built environment career. They are professions and practices, morphology and change, scales and agglomerations, infrastructures and services, cultures and experiences, and finally, inquiry and analysis. This chapter is basically a discussion about what urbanisation and urbanism are. And these are alternative ways of thinking about urbanism that are more commonly used in the built environment professions. What I'm going to do now is to flag some of the key features of these alternative ways of thinking about urbanism. Things you can look out for when you're reading the textbook. These are reading tips, if you like, to help you with your reading and note-taking. And we'll start with professions and practices. So a typical reading list of the key historical figures in the built environment often includes a familiar set of urbanists, people like Ebenezer Howard, Lewis Worth, Lewis Mumford, Jane Jacobs, and the list goes on. 
Some people will tell you this urban thinker is better than that urban thinker, or this list of urban thinkers is better than that list of urban thinkers, and there's a lot of disagreement about how to present this history. But we're not going to get into that right now. We can have that debate and argument later. But what I want to suggest is that the history of urbanism, however you define it, is important for two key reasons. The first is that much of the intellectual footing for the built environment professions, at least in Western universities in the 20th century, has been provided by a key set of thinkers. This is Worth, Mumford, Jacobs, etc. So having a working knowledge of these people and their ideas is important because you'll encounter them in the professional domain, you'll encounter them in your jobs because they provide a commonly cited touchstone in your built environment practice. And most Western-trained built environment professionals will know who the American-Canadian Jane Jacobs is. But do they know about scholars like the Australian Jane Jacobs? If not, the second reason why these key urban thinkers is important is that they represent a blind spot in our thinking about cities – And this is particularly the case in settler countries like Australia. The implication of these two somewhat dueling histories is that you'll need to be knowledgeable in the Western built environment canon and critical of it too. Let me give you two examples. Lewis Worth's most important contribution as an applied sociologist, was that he asked us to go out into the city to learn about the people and places of our cities. In other words, we can take from Worth his idea that being an urbanist is an applied practice that requires you to get out of the studio or classroom and into the city. And his writing is a useful touchstone in the history of ideas about the formation and analysis of cities. So there's parts of the Western urbanism canon that are useful. And yet, the contemporary Western-built environment professional of today also needs to come to terms with the violent colonial foundations of their professions. And this is what the Australian Jane Jacobs is on about. In Chapter 2, we'll learn about how the planning of cities and the construction of buildings on Aboriginal land is literally how Aboriginal peoples were dispossessed of their land in Australia. And the built environment professions are therefore implicated in this ongoing dispossession. So thinking about professions and practices involves turning a critical eye onto the ideas and activities that make up the built environment professions. The second set of ideas is morphology and change. And looking at how cities have emerged and changed over time has been central to understanding cities for a long time. The first point to make about this theme is that the birth of settler society urbanism in countries like Australia is very different to the birth of urbanism in Europe and other places. We know a lot about the early European empires and the development of cities across Europe and beyond. The writers of these histories are interested in the different eras of urban development, and they teach us some important points about our cities. They write about early medieval cities being characterised by trade and economic activity, immigration, 
the concentration of skills and knowledge, and changing political arrangements that emerged from these new forms of social and legal organisations, particularly as they relate to city formation. Later, mercantile capitalism led to the formation of nation-states and citizenships, with cities becoming the economic engines of these nation-states. As the new nation-states expanded their territory, they added new cities as additional economic nodes within this mercantile system. We see in these cities the beginnings of global capitalism and ideas around free trade and individualism. So understanding city formation is central to understanding how capitalism, free markets and nation-state formation emerged. As the European trading empires expanded their political, economic and territorial power around the world, they linked the rural to the urban and plugged the urbanising colonial cities into a new global colonial order, as the primary urban products were brought into the urban economic engines of the colonised countries to be commodified and sent back to the colonial powers. Through this process, they created the urban in what some people call the New World, which has always been related to the colonial project. Then the shift from mercantile and colonial wealth to industrial wealth was accompanied by the rise of industrial cities in the 17th and 18th centuries. The changing urban conditions that are associated with the Industrial Revolution led to changing ideas about urban life. The workforce-driven in-migration into cities, overcrowding and the appalling living and working conditions that emerged in these industrial-era cities resulted in new social philosophies that intended to remedy the dreadful living and working conditions in industrial cities. And here's the point about this. The urban rich and poor both became conscious of their social positions, and this gave rise to class consciousness in the industrial city. Basically, people became aware of their social position and the relations of power and economics in the industrial city. So understanding the long sweep of urban morphology and social change will prepare you for some of the core analytical and practical tasks you'll do as a built environment professional. The third set of ideas in this chapter is scales and agglomerations. And we get a bit philosophical about time and space in the chapter itself, but you're more likely to encounter these ideas by other names in your professional practice. Names like scale, place, history, agglomeration, and so on. As a built environment professional, you will be constantly working with these different times and spaces of cities. We talk through a couple of examples in the chapter. The first is designing a new park, which requires an understanding of both the physical or mathematical site attributes and how people will subjectively experience this place. And because not everyone will experience the place in the same way, there's always a politics to this time and space, a politics between the mathematical or physical site attributes and the subjective experiences of this place. And this might all seem a bit trivial or a bit philosophical, but I encourage you to never underestimate the importance of the politics 
of time and space in the built environment because people's lives may, and indeed often do, depend on it. What you design and build, and perhaps more importantly, how you're thinking about time and space in this built environment practice is critically important. And this is perhaps most powerfully captured in discussions about the colonisation of Australia and some of the earliest examples of built environment practice in Australia. Just consider this for a second. As the European settlers moved the colonial frontier across this continent and built simple structures in the frontier's wake, they not only violently dispossessed Aboriginal people of their land, but they also sought to rewrite Aboriginal people's understandings of these places. Deborah Bird-Rose reminds us that the mathematical demarcation of physical space and calendar time are ideas that were imported to Australia by European colonisers. Aboriginal people have their own conceptions of time, space, land and history. And Deborah Bird-Rose talks about the frontier as a year zero, or as a moment of transformation where European time and space were forced onto Indigenous time and space. What she's saying here is that literally our understanding of time and space was changed in this moment. It's a very powerful statement. So what we're asking you to do in this chapter is to not take ideas like scale, place, history, agglomeration, and so on for granted, but to ask, what is the politics of these ideas? What sort of work are these ideas doing? What are they rendering more visible? And what are they turning invisible in the process? How do these ideas shape how we think about cities and who benefits and who loses when we frame cities in these ways with these ideas? And what is the full suite of ideas that we could use to think about the different times and spaces of our cities? Western notions of time and space, indigenous notions of time and space, the time and space of planners, the time and space of architects. Let's think about them all together as a set of competing and complementary ideas. And much like the last set of ideas, the scales and agglomeration theme will prepare you for some of the most important analytical and practical tasks you'll do as a built environment professional, including thinking about how concepts like scale and history are never neutral nor apolitical ideas, rather they are inherently political. The fourth set of ideas in this chapter are about infrastructure and services, and these make up what some people call the veins and arteries that make cities possible. Indeed, the veins and arteries that make cities work and function. The infrastructure we build in our cities will in turn shape our societies, so things like our transport infrastructure, our digital infrastructure, our sewerage and energy systems, even our food and housing systems will all go on to shape who we are and how we function in society. These systems shape our movement, our social interactions, our health outcomes, our environment, our economies, our politics and so much more. But the weird thing about infrastructure is that despite its importance, this infrastructure is almost always invisible. 
It's an invisible intervention into the form and function of our cities. Until, of course, something goes wrong with it. And at that point, it becomes highly visible. Infrastructures are something that can create tensions between groups of people, but they can also bring people together. Infrastructure can be built, destroyed, bought and sold. But perhaps the most important point to make about infrastructure is that it is not neutral nor apolitical. In fact, the provision of infrastructure is highly political and it can serve the interests of some people in society while being detrimental to others. In the chapter, we talk about the provision of infrastructure as being key to the formation of a new kind of urbanism that emerged in the mid-20th century in the post-war period in Western cities. A key part of this was the standardisation of a whole bunch of urban infrastructure. So think about things like roads, rail, airports, electrical systems, water pipes, things like that. These were essential for the smooth production, distribution and consumption of the new urban goods and services that would flow over and through and between these infrastructures. These infrastructures then effectively stitched together an otherwise fractious urban landscape and gave Western governments more capacity to regulate, govern and control their populations. The objective of these governments at this time was to provide an integrated and accessible infrastructure network that was democratically activated and available to everyone. These integrated infrastructure systems were effectively state-owned monopolies, and they required price controls and other subsidies to maintain their democratic intent. But by the late 20th century, as the post-war welfare state infrastructure started to age, through poor maintenance regimes and a lack of reinvestment, new ideas about how to fund, build and manage urban infrastructure began to emerge. What this resulted in was a city that would be no longer underwritten by an integrated and accessible infrastructure system, and one that was democratically available to everyone. Instead, the city's infrastructure was sold off to private companies, who would then use market and user pay models to provide, build and manage urban infrastructure. By the time we get to the early 21st century, we see three key changes from this earlier post-war welfare state infrastructure period. First, the private financing, provision and management of urban infrastructure increasingly affects different parts of the city and different urban residents in different ways. Second, and this is related to the first point, no longer is infrastructure integration thought of as a democratic project whereby issues such as urban inequality or socio-spatial disadvantage might be addressed. And third, digital communications infrastructure is an increasingly important component of urban infrastructure provision, and it has its own equity problems related to access and cost. So here's the point about this theme. Almost every chapter in this textbook contributes in some ways to the infrastructure and services theme. The fifth set of ideas in the chapter is experiences and cultures, and here we shift onto sociological understandings of urban life. 
So shifting from thinking about how people and society shape the built environment to thinking about how the built environment might be shaping people and society. So this theme is turning towards the intersections of the physical, economic, political and cultural structures of cities to understand urbanism. The chapter talks about the different ways that people engage with and understand the city, with examples like the discussion of Aboriginal and Western notions of time and space, or the cultural tensions over the provision of mosques and Islamic schools and how these play out through the planning system. As a built environment professional, you'll be constantly asking yourself questions like, is the physical morphology of the city following the social morphology of society? Or is the social morphology of the city producing certain built forms? And is social discrimination and inequality literally being built into the physical fabric of our cities? And if it is, what can we do about it? When you're asked to go out into the city to learn about urbanism in your university course, these are the types of questions to keep in mind. The city should be thought of as the site and focus of your inquiry into urbanism. And this leads to our last set of ideas, inquiry and analysis. So I suggested at the beginning of this episode that urbanism is a mode of inquiry and analysis through which we might come to understand the city. There are new definitions and theories of urbanism emerging all the time, and you'll have to work out how to keep on top of these debates. Contemporary studies in urbanism will help you keep informed about some of the more perennial issues about cities. Questions like, how do the things we build shape our societies? And how do our societies shape the things we build? And what sort of urban professionals will we need to go forward in the future? And if you're willing to take up this challenge, congratulations, you're now an urbanist. Urbanist.